Hello and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Professor Sarah Newman from the Department of Anthropology. She's an anthropological archaeologist, and her research explores anthropological and environmental issues, including histories of waste and reuse, long-term landscape transformations, and human-animal relationships. Professor Newman primarily conducts research in Latin America, with a particular focus on Mesoamerica and the ancient Maya. Professor Newman is here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Sarah Newman. It is a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure for me too. So Sarah, give me just a general sense of your career. Let's start off in your undergraduate college days and then Take me on the journey with you all the way up to your current position at the University of Chicago. So I went to Yale University for my undergrad. And when I got to college, my my parents didn't go to college. So I didn't really have kind of a, I just had a lot of freedom in terms of, you know, I could kind of do anything I wanted. And I didn't really have also any kind of expectations of what that should be. And a lot of my roommates and my friends my first year a lot of people were pre-med so I sort of went along with that and I was doing the kind of pre-med program and actually I imagined that I was going to major in in biomedical engineering and I did that for the first two years and then one of the things we had to do as part of the the major in biomedical engineering was to do a lab rotation and I worked with a, a graduate student who was studying these timed release drugs for ovarian cancer. And so I had to, I had to keep going to the lab at crazy hours of the night to take samples, you know, because you have to do everything at two hours, four hours, eight hours. And I just realized, I just realized that I was kind of doing something that I, I was going through the motions and I had no real interest and I wasn't particularly good at, at the things I should have been good at to do that. So at the start of my third year, I, I just kind of sat down with the course catalog and thought, I'll look through and see what I'm interested in. And I really never got any further than the A's. And so I ended up taking a lot of courses in anthropology, archaeology, and art history, and then switched switched my major to archaeology and, and art history. I did a double major. And and then as part of the, the archaeology major, I went the summer of my junior year, I, I went to two different field schools. First, to an underwater archaeology field school in the Great Lakes in in Wisconsin, and then and then I went to Honduras and went to a, an art history field school at, at Copan at a Maya site in Honduras, and so then you know I came back and I finished my degree, and I kind of wasn't sure if I wanted to continue with the underwater archaeology or with Latin American archaeology, and I ended up applying for and getting a, a fellowship to do more underwater archaeology in the Great Lakes. And I went to work at, at a place called the Great Lakes Maritime Heritage Center, which is a, a museum in uh, Alpena, Michigan, in very far northern Michigan, which is connected to the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary, which is a, an area in northern Lake Huron where there are a ton of shipwrecks, mostly kind of from the 19th, 20th centuries. And, and so I, I worked there for a bit doing more underwater archaeology and then I'm I'm originally from Nevada, so I actually didn't know very much about ships and and sort of maritime life. So I took about a year 
and worked as there are a lot of these recreation tall ship vessels around. So things like South Street Seaport in New York is where you kind of tend to see them. So I spent about a year working as a, a deckhand on these tall ships. And the idea was kind of just to get a sense of how ships work and what are the different parts and pieces that I was seeing under the water and kind of better connect the wrecked ships that I was seeing with kind of what they, you know, how things actually functioned. And then I went back to the the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary and, and worked there for another year or so. And then I had been thinking at the time about kind of pursuing a career in maritime archaeology, but it's very, it's sort of a, it's, I mean, it's not really a new field anymore, but, you know, it's recent as far as kind of specialties in archaeology go. And so there are not a ton of programs in, there's very good ones, but there's not very many. And the the possibilities for a job afterwards were sort of limited. But I had started thinking about going back to graduate school and sort of that I really liked the work I was doing, which was sort of a mix of research and outreach and education. And I just kind of wanted to have the opportunity to to learn more. And so I talked to some of my undergraduate advisors and decided that I wanted to go to to graduate school more for Mesoamerican archaeology than than maritime archaeology. And one of my undergrad advisors from Yale told me to think about going to Brown University to work with Professor Stephen Houston, who's a, a specialist in, he's an archaeologist, but also a specialist in ancient Maya hieroglyphic writing. And yeah, and I, I went to Brown, I met with him, and then I applied and yeah, and we just sort of like hit it off. And then, yeah, and so then then when I started at Brown, Steve Houston was working at a site called El Sotz in, in northern Guatemala. And so my first year of graduate school, actually before my first year of graduate school, I went down to Guatemala to work in the, the lab after the other students had completed the, the fieldwork that season. And then that was a big part of my graduate training was working at, at that site in El Sotz. And kind of my, yeah, my first year of graduate school we made kind of a, a big discovery at El Sotz. The, we found the intact tomb of an early classic Maya king from the like late 4th century AD, which is one of those things that, you know, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime sort of find. Maybe not once-in-a-lifetime for everybody, but anyway. And, it, you know, it was kind of my first year of grad school, and it was such a, just this, like, incredible learning experience. You know, there are all these things in the tomb that are hard to deal with, like perishable materials, and so... I got to work with conservators and learn about that. And, and I just sort of got to watch a lot of very good archaeologists do their work. And so, and then we, we wrote a, a book um, about the tomb. And so it was all just like a very, very good, really amazing training for me. And um, then after I finished my, my PhD, I went, I've had a kind of a number of academic jobs. I've sort of bounced around a bit. So I had a, a job for a year at Wesleyan University as a visiting assistant professor and then I spent two years at James Madison University in Virginia, one year at the University of Vermont, and then came to the University of Chicago in 2019. Wow. So thank you for taking me on the journey, <laughs> Sarah. I appreciate it. So talk to me about your particular research interests and how you would explain, you know, what you do to someone, maybe like a high schooler, someone who has no experience with anthropology whatsoever. Yeah, I think in general, I mean, I would say broadly, the thing I'm really interested in is how people in the past and in the present, but primarily sort of how people 
interact with the world around them. So a lot of times that's sort of, I kind of focus that in terms of environmental archaeology and sort of how it is that people use different types of resources, whether that's the different types of animals that that they find in the environment around them or how they modify landscapes to better, to make them kind of serve their needs. And so I'm really interested in sort of the way that people over time have kind of found different ways to make to make their worlds work for them and to kind of interact with their their environments and also um, especially how people understand what they're doing you know what are the relationships that people have to their natural environments to the landscape to animals and so so some of my work in in Latin America has been about that especially about an, human and animal relationships and then I've also been working for the past five years in Jordan at the city of Petra. And there, the, the project that I'm working with, we're really interested in sort of how people have used different techniques to capture water in the desert and how they were able to kind of transform an environment that seems initially kind of hostile into something that, you know, they were capable of growing lots of date palms and manipulating water to have gardens and pools and things like that. So yeah, I'm I'm sort of interested in how people have kind of both understood their their place in the world and then also kind of modified things or made use of different resources to kind of make the world into what they want it to be. And tell me a little bit about your specific focus. You said that you are in Latin America right now, is that correct? Yeah, actually, at the moment, I'm in Colombia, and part of that's part of a, a new project that I'm starting that's kind of about the long-term histories between humans and, and animals in the Americas. And there's there's been, in anthropology, there's been a lot of really interesting research to show that people in different parts of the Americas have really different ways of understanding the relationships between themselves as humans and other other species non-human animals, but also plants and, and even inanimate things like stones and stuff like that. And one of the things that has been really productive is there's been a lot of really exciting ethnographies in the Amazon where people have kind of really worked out some of the ways that, that people don't see themselves as being fundamentally different from other types of animals. That, you know, I think the, the idea is sort of that you know, most of the people who are listening to to this podcast, the way we tend to think about things is, you know, that nature is something that exists. And then humans have culture that helps us kind of manipulate nature into what we want it to be. But the understanding in the in parts of the Amazon is is flipped so that what we share with animals and maybe other plants is sort of that we all have culture. So animals see themselves the same way that humans see ourselves. You know, they imagine that you know, there's certain types of food that they share or drinks that they prefer. They imagine their feathers or fur to be kind of like the same way humans see dance costumes and things like that. And that what's different about us is just the kind of nature aspect, the sort of like physical bodies that we have. So there are these really interesting sort of ways of both seeing and experiencing and, and also just being in the world. And one of the things that that I'm interested in is kind of you know, how, how far do those ideas travel? How are they different in different parts of the Americas? Is there something 
you know, is there something similar or slightly different that's happening further north in Mesoamerica versus down in the Amazon in South America? What about, you know, the relationships that people have in North America? So, yeah, so this is part of kind of a, a new project of, I mean, one of the things that that, that we have planned for next year is a, a conference to bring together people working in different parts of the Americas to kind of compare ideas on on these different types of relationships. Wow, that's really fascinating. What about your support system when you were pursuing your graduate degree and also looking for a career in this field? Who did you lean on for support? I've always relied pretty heavily on my older sister. So she's a big source of support. And, and my family's always very supportive. It's just sort of that, you know, they don't quite have a sense of what it means to you know, write a dissertation chapter or take an oral exam or be on the job market or something. So they're always supportive. It's just not with like concrete advice or something like that. I also, I mean, I was very lucky to have a really great PhD advisor in Steve Houston. And just, I mean, it's funny, you know, now that I'm a professor and I have, I work with graduate students and I have a student of my own, I, I think a lot about how much effort Steve put into all of his students. And I mean, he really, he just, he was always available to read anything that we had written. He was really generous with advice. He often made, he often created opportunities for students. You know, he would teach these graduate seminars that then would turn into edited volumes so that students would have publications. So he, he both was, was really supportive, but also just did a lot of things where Sometimes at the time you didn't realize that he was teaching you and, and then by the end of it, you would have learned, you know, how to, you know, he'd make you do these presentations in class and then you'd realize you sort of learned how to teach or he would have you write things for edited volumes and you would realize, okay, well now I know how to complete an article. And, and it's these sort of things that, yeah, you kind of have to learn by doing. So just the fact that he made those opportunities was just really yeah, made made it so that kind of each step on the way to getting my PhD and then and then afterwards, you sort of realize that little by little you had kind of gathered all of these skills without even realizing that that's what was happening. And so again, in some way, there's like a little bit of ignorance there or something in that you're not sort of thinking, oh, I really need to learn how to lecture, how to give a lecture to a big group of people. You sort of just learn how to do that on the way. And then when that becomes part of the job you have to do, you're ready, you know. And then Sarah, what advice would you have to people who are considering entering this field? Well, I think the the biggest thing for me in terms of my career is just that I really took advantage of a lot of different opportunities. And sometimes they didn't quite make sense, maybe at the time that I was pursuing them or at the time that I was doing them. But in the end, I think just having a, a wide variety of experience always kind of ends up helping. I mean, it just gives you a bigger breadth of experiences to draw from. You just you meet different people. You have different sources of support and influence. And so I think the key thing, I mean, I, I say this to, to students a lot, but I think one of the key things is kind of just allowing yourself to kind of experiment a little bit. You know, I think it's really easy for students to feel like the important thing is to decide what you want to do and then to pursue that thing. And, the, you know, like from 
whether as undergraduates or as graduate students, that it's it's very easy to kind of close yourself off to unexpected possibilities. And so I think, you know, like learning a language that you're not sure how you'll use or, you know, taking a class that's kind of out of your immediate, the, the things that seem like they might be useful, that really just kind of open up doors that are unexpected. You know, I think the the advice I would kind of have is both to be open to things and then also just to kind of, yeah, to try things that maybe don't seem like they're going to be the most directly important for your career or for what the the subject that you're studying, because those things always sort of come back around to somehow be useful or to kind of, uh, yeah, have an impact on what you're doing or change the trajectory just a little bit. And then why academia? Like, why do this type of work as opposed to something else using your skill set? Well, I think, so in some ways, archaeology is kind of, I mean, it's such a kind of specialized career, you know. So there's forms of archaeology that you can do, you know, uh, what we call cultural resource management. So in most countries, before you build something, you have to check to make sure that you're not going to disturb archaeological remains. And the the laws vary from country to country. But in the United States, for example, before any kind of building is constructed or a road or something like that, you have to make sure that you're not going to destroy something, some kind of uh, important archaeological site or remains. And so there's a lot of work in the U.S. And even the work that I was doing, the underwater archaeology at Thunder Bay Rain Sanctuary, you know, a lot of that was identifying or mapping or creating information about shipwrecks for local divers and school children and things like that. So there's work to be done um, in terms of kind of the way that uh, cultural heritage is kind of wrapped up in basically like everyday life in the United States and other places. But I think what I really like about archaeology and academia is that the whole point is kind of to answer these questions that are really difficult to answer. And so, you know, it's it's kind of a the very sort of long-term view where you you are kind of interested in understanding how people have done things differently in the past or how the past was different than the present. And in some ways, those kinds of questions maybe are never answerable, but you kind of learn more and more as you investigate them. And so I really... Um, I mean, the reason that I decided to go back to graduate school and kind of pursue a career in academia was that kind of the fact that, you know, you, you had this possibility of always learning more of never quite kind of finishing the task, that there was always going to be something new to to ask or something new to to discover. And then the other thing that's just great about the job that I have is that I have this I have so many opportunities to to travel widely and meet a lot of different people and get to know different places. And so that that's also that's also part of, you know, academic research and archaeology that I might not have otherwise. And what about your least favorite part of the job? Like what isn't fun for you? I think the least I think my least favorite part is probably grading. And it's funny because there's something very satisfying about it, you know, about sort of seeing what a student has learned in your class and kind of yeah seeing the 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 ways that the things that you've taught them are reflected in a paper or you know in an exam or something like that 
combined with kind of their own take on the material. So there is something rewarding as you're doing the grading, but it's also, it's so being in the classroom is just great and discussions with students are great. And it's like really exciting to exchange ideas or to see what they're bringing to the material that you're teaching. And then in the end, you kind of have to boil it down to numbers and to, you know, how much of a percentage do you give for participation? And is this a B minus or a B plus paper? And that's the part that I I think I dislike the most is sort of, you know, there's all this kind of energy and excitement, and then you kind of have to boil it down to A minus or A. And yeah, and sort of in the end, the takeaway is like this number or this letter rather than, you know, it's hard to condense the experience of a, a class into just this one number of points or whatever. And then finally, on the flip side of that, Sarah, tell me about what is most gratifying or fulfilling about the, this work that you do. I think what I find most fulfilling is just the fact that there are always new challenges. I mean, I just... I'm constantly meeting new people through my job, whether it's new students, new new undergraduate students, new graduate students, new colleagues. You know, you're always finding new conversations to have. There's always sort of interesting points of connection in the work you're doing and the work someone else is doing. And it's just, I mean, yeah, it's just a, a really dynamic job to have. You know, you sort of have the freedom to decide what kinds of things you want to pursue. And then the experience of pursuing them for me at least is always really really satisfying really rewarding I mean I like I said I have the opportunity to travel a lot I've spent time in a lot of places that I think you know places that I never would have imagined I would spend you know many months or many weeks at a time let alone maybe even visit you know I don't think when I was growing up I would have thought that I'd spend a few months every year at the city of Petra or something like that yeah. And so I think it's just the, the the fact that that you just kind of there's just constantly new new challenges and you never feel like you've sort of like like you've done it. You know, you never sort of reach the end. There's always kind of a new direction to go in. There's new people to talk to. There's new things to think about. And there's just so much I mean, that's happening all across academia. So there's always people putting out new ideas that kind of lead you in a different direction or there's exciting conferences happening or just yeah it's kind of it's always new always exciting I think thank you professor Sarah Newman for your time today and course takers if you enjoyed listening to today's interview please check out the other ones leave us a comment subscribe follow and share this episode with your friends and family you can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk stay tuned for more and thanks for listening